From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Doda. The Human Genome Project was launched in 1990 with the goal of determining the DNA sequence of the entire human genome. The project was completed in 2003. Amazing. It's incredible. And, and what that has done now is allow scientists to use that knowledge about a patient's genome to diagnose, predict, treat, and even prevent disease. On today's program, we'll discuss genomics research with one of the pioneers in the field. Also on the program, Dr. Sanj Kakar and Tracy McRae discuss eye health with a Mayo Clinic expert. And how cancer survivorship care plans can help the patient and their family prepare for the future. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Dota. Mr. Dennis Dota, nice to have you with us Thank today. Thank you, sir. Well, the genome, you've heard about it. It's defined as a complete set of genes or genetic material inside a cell or, of an, or-, or an organism. Now, when it comes to humans, the genome carries a mind-boggling amount of information. Three billion pairs of DNA letters are carried inside a human's... How many cells do you have? Have any idea how many cells inside? Inside the body? Only because you left a note for me here. That's the only reason I would know. 100 trillion. Now, since the final sequencing and mapping of the human genome was finished around 2003, researchers have been exploring how this new understanding of the genome might be used for the early detection of diseases like heart disease, Alzheimer's, even cancer. Here to discuss the human genome is genomics expert Dr. Richard Winchelbaum. Dr. Winchelbaum is the director of the Pharmacogenomics Program in the Center for Individualized Medicine, the Mayo Clinic right here in Rochester. Dr. Winchelbaum, we've been waiting forever to have you on this program. Great to have you with us. Nice to be here. You know, you have been at this for a long time. Tell us why uh, you got interested in uh, genomics and what you're doing. Well, you're the first person to ever ask me that question. Uh, (laughs) I I took a fruit fly genomics course at the University of Kansas as I was getting ready to go to medical school, and I thought, this is fascinating. It's going to be part of the future. Now, frankly, did I really think that during my career we would have the entire sequence of the human genome? I thought that would happen someday. But the fact that it happened very, as you just pointed out, early in the 21st century is amazing. And what's really exciting is that I think the way the press portrayed that was a race to the finish line to get to the finish of the human genome. No, no. It was a race to the starting line. And what's happening now is we're using that information in medicine and in pharmacogenomics being only one aspect of that to try and do a better job of diagnosing and treating our patients. It's really exciting to have a chance to take part in all of this. You know, some of our listeners probably have heard of DNA or that they have genes that aren't made by Levi's um, (laughs) or they know they have chromosomes. But what are those things and how does that fit into what we're now referring to as the genome? Well, basically, in the course of evolution, we all have these only four letters, A, G, T, C, that are these so-called nucleotides that are the way we encode all the proteins in our body. And the genome is the way we, basically a book that has all of these letters written out. And we have about 20,000, 25,000 genes that genes encode 
messenger RNA. The messenger RNA makes proteins. The proteins do things in our, in our liver, in our brain, all over our body. And if there's a misspelling in one of those genes, that can cause trouble. Sometimes it does good things, but most of the time it doesn't. Sure. So that can cause trouble. And some of the examples, I just was looking at a, at a manuscript that one of my colleagues and I wrote this morning where we picked one of the early examples of a miscoding in one of these genes and what that meant in the way we treat childhood leukemia. Now, you're going to say, how in the world do you get from a couple of these letters being the wrong letters to childhood leukemia? Childhood leukemia is the number one cancer of kids. And when I was in medical school, what our students today would regard as the Paleolithic era when I was in medical school, <laughs> if we saw a child with childhood leukemia, that child, unfortunately, would not survive the next year or two. We mm -hmm. had virtually nothing to do for them. I but, went to medical school at the same time you did, it sounds like. Yeah. We're not going to compare Paleolithic <laughs> with Neolithic or anything like that. So, so as a matter of fact, my daughter, who's a pediatrician in North Carolina, if she sees these kids today, she can cure 95% of them. Wow. Now, I think that's a miracle. I, I'm sure that anyone would if you just sort of think about it. These are little three, four-year-old kids who have this disease. They're going to survive for the next 70 years because of drugs. So that's not radiation therapy. That's not surgery. It's drugs. Give us a scenario where knowing perhaps what genes are in that child could help them be paired with the proper medicine or treated in the in the proper sequence. I think you've been reading my mind. So <laughs> when we started doing the kind of research I'm talking about nigh 30, 40 years ago, it became clear that these drugs work that, that my daughter uses to cure childhood leukemia, but every now and then, these are powerful drugs. They do real damage. They have an adverse drug reaction that can wipe out their bone marrow, and the child can even die from the drug. We didn't understand why, and, and our laboratory asked about 30 years ago, could it be that there's a genetic variation in the genes that encode the protein your body uses to get rid of these powerful drugs? And the fact of the matter is we found in one of these genes two misspellings that changed the encoded protein so it didn't work anymore, and the dose that a pediatrician like my daughter would use to treat these kids was 10 to 15-fold too high of a really powerful drug that can kill cancer cells, but also if you're giving a 10-fold overdose, not intentionally. Nobody intended that to happen. It's because of a variation in a gene that the child got from mom and dad. And that gene, called TPMT, and I won't tell you what that stands for, that gene <laughs> is really common in people who come from northern Europe. So that about one out of every 20 copies of that gene in Northern Europeans is this variant. So we need to know that to adjust the dosing of this drug. That's pharmacogenomics. We use the genomics to guide our therapy so we can avoid really bad things like inadvertently harming someone's child when we're using a drug that in most kids will cure their, their cancer and also to maximize the efficacy, to try and get the best dose for that particular patient. Now, that amazes me. By the way, that gene that I'm talking about has never, ever been seen in anyone from East Asia. No one from China, Korea, or Japan. So we're all, as Francis Collins, the director of the NIH and the guy who directed the Genome Projects, likes to say, 
all of us, every member of our species across the world is 99.9% identical at the level of our genome. That ought to make all of us behave better, but I'm afraid it doesn't. But, but as a matter of fact, we're all related to each other in that way. But those little bit of difference can make a big difference. We thought for years that we didn't need to worry about this kind of problem for these thiopurine drugs, which is what that thing. Now we know that there's a gene in East Asia, a totally different gene, that also has a problem. And the only place it's found in America is in the Native Americans because they came over the land bridge from Asia. Pretty incredible. So you can uh, figure out the, the, the leukemia patient's genome before they ever get any chemotherapy and identify those ones who are going to be more sensitive to the drug than others. And tailor the therapy. That's exactly right. We've been doing that here at Mayo. It's been a standard test since 1990. Absolutely incredible. We're talking about genomics with pharmacologist Dr. Richard Winchelbaum. Time for a short break. And when we come back, we're going to look on toward the future. We're going to talk with Dr. Winchelbaum about what's ahead in this very exciting field. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Dennis Dota. We are back talking with genomics expert Dr. Richard Winchelbaum. And so, Doctor, what's next now in this field of genomics, would you say? Well, in terms of genomics is going to be important in every aspect of medicine. And, and I know that all of us think immediately about cancer because cancer is a genomic disease, and there's no doubt that genomics will play a critically important role both in the diagnosis and treatment of cancer. But as you might expect, I'd say, and, and as a matter of fact, the facts are that the aspect of clinical genomics, actually applying this to patients, that eventually will touch every patient everywhere is pharmacogenomics. Because I just gave you an example of a drug that's used to treat childhood cancer. If you look on the Food and Drug Administration website, they now list 127 drugs that there's clinically actionable variation in our genome and that you would want to know about while being treated with drugs for the treatment of high blood pressure, cardiac disease, rheumatologic disease, psychiatric disease, virtually every disease. So what is really happening here is that we are now moving beyond one or two genes to put together panels where we use DNA sequencing to sequence all the genes that we currently know of have clinical importance for drug response, either to avoid serious adverse drug reactions like the bone marrow depression that I talked about with TPMT, or to maximize the efficacy of the drug. Some people need more drugs than other people. Some people need less drug than other people. We know that. We've all talked to each other at cocktail parties about that. But as a matter of fact, now we can actually predict it and tailor the therapy. And the problem for the average doc is this is 127 drugs. How do you keep all that straight and how do you know what to do? And what we're doing today is putting that information in the electronic health record. So the fact that genomic information has developed in parallel with the use of computers, which is really what electronic health record is, to store that information that no human being's brain can possibly handle means that what's happening at all Mayo Clinic sites today, we have 17 different alerts that fire. If somebody's writing a prescription for that thiopurine drug, immediately an alert will appear on the computer screen for the doctor saying, doctor, there is a genetic test. Would you like to order it? Now, that's not where we're going to go. That's what's happening today. It's happening with all 1.4 million patients that we see at Mayo Clinic. So right then, at the point of care, when the doctor's writing the prescription, an alert comes back to them. You're kidding. And what we want to have happen is not for the alert to say, doctor, 
do you want to order a genetic test and wait for the result? We want to already have that information in the electronic health record. So it'll say, doctor, that patient, the one sitting with you right this minute, you should cut the dose in half or you should double the dose. Nobody's going to remember that except for the electronic health record. And then we put all that information in there. So for 10,000 of our patients, local patients who gave us permission to do this, we're taking their DNA, we're sequencing all of the genes that we currently know of play a role in variation in drug response. Everything is listed on that FDA website that I talked about just a minute ago. And that will be there for these patients when they need the drug right at the point of care, and the computer will, the electronic health record, tell the doctor what to do next, which my daughter, who keeps me honest, says, Dad, do not give me all that genetic mumbo-jumbo. I've got a a waiting room full of kids with earaches and urinary tract infections. I want to know, do I raise the dose? Do I lower the dose? Or do I get a different drug? And that's where we're trying to go. So uh, you, if you have the patient's genome... uh, have identified that through, through a blood test, then you can determine what drug is most effective and what dose that patient should have. If, the, if we know that there are genetic variations, obviously it's up to the doctor to exercise his or her judgment about the selection of, if it's a depressed patient, of an SSRI, those are the standard of care drugs. But which one, and they're all metabolized by our bodies differently, it may be that one would not be good for one patient just because his or her body couldn't get rid of it, and they're going to have an overdose and have a bad side effect, stop taking the drug, and become suicidal. We don't want to see that happen. So what this will do is begin to make the life of the physician easier, and we won't interrupt the doctor and say, would you like to order a test, knowing that, that many of the tests will be negative. The information will be there. It will only be when it is clinically relevant for that individual patient. This is truly precision medicine or individualized medicine. So who, I mean, it sounds like all of us ought to have that on our medical record. Well, of course, I'm a little biased, but I happen to think (laughs) that that's where we're going. And now we're testing this with 10,000 patients so that we can determine, is this cost effective? And right now, it doesn't cost that much to do this kind of testing. We're not sequencing the entire genome. We're just capturing the genes that we know today that the Food and Drug Administration, this is not Dr. Winchelbaum, it's the Food and Drug Administration has said this gene is important for individual differences in the dosing or use of this drug. Mm. And we capture those, sequence those, put that information in the electronic health record. And you can get that information from a blood test. From a blood test. You draw a blood sample, extract the DNA, send it through a DNA sequencer. It's easy for me to say this stuff because (laughs) it's very, very complicated to do. And then get that information into the electronic health record. That's the future that all of us are going to be seeing. And a computer does this. How long does it take uh, to go ahead and sequence an individual's genomic um, in, in, in today's uh, you know, world, material? The, I, and I, let me emphasize again, I was not talking about sequencing all three billion nucleotides. We just capture about a million. Now, that's a, just about a million. And then sequence them. Uh, that can be done in a matter of days, actually, in today's world. Wow. How much uh, does it cost? You said it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, so, uh, and a patient shouldn't necessarily have it done until they are uh, have one of these diseases where you know that pharmacogenomics can help. No, no. What what I was trying to say, and I'll say it very clearly now: we should do this in a preemptive fashion. Do I know? And I was talking to. 
to uh, one of my colleagues today who's going to have orthopedic surgery, and he was worried about anticoagulation. We know that many of the anticoagulant drugs show big genetic variations in response. Hmm. And he was actually asking me questions because he was thinking about exactly this. We don't know who's going to need drug X, Y, or Z, but we do know the genes that play a role in all of these drugs, whatever drug you're prescribed. So the information should be parked in your electronic health record ahead of time and used only when it's relevant, when the doctor's writing the prescription. Now, that sounds, I realize, like science fiction. It's already happening, and it's going to happen on a much broader scale. So that uh, realizing that I've devoted my career to pharmacogenomics, but this is an aspect of medicine which, where that kind of information, having it there, is just like vaccinating to prevent polio. Do patients who come to the Mayo Clinic now get this, have their human genome checked and become part of their medical record? The 10,000 patients whom I was just talking about are Mm -hmm. local patients who were doing this in a research setting, but it will be used clinically. It's clinically usable. But for other patients, it is possible to order this kind of testing, yes. Are we doing it routinely, or will we be doing it routinely? It is increasingly becoming routine. Oh, man. Pretty amazing stuff. It's incredible. And I know, you know, you and I being here on the campus of Mayo Clinic, we talk to doctors who are often studying, you know, applications for breast cancer, for example, and they say that it helps them keep from wasting their time with a particular drug that won't be metabolized by a fourth of the population. Or picking a drug that will benefit the patient and not using a drug that won't, and that, that actually applies in breast cancer. So when you are filling out the prescription, uh, uh, on the computer, the computer will flash up a, uh, a sign, uh, a message that this, uh, for, for this particular condition, uh, there are, uh, if we check the patient's genome, we can help you, we can help direct your therapy. And that's being done today. What we want to have done tomorrow is that it will say, for this patient, this particular patient, don't use this drug, use that drug. Absolutely incredible. We've been talking about genomics with the director of the pharmacogenomics program at the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He is Dr. Richard Winchelbaum. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, Dr. Sanj Kakar and Tracy McRae take over hosting duties to discuss adult eye health with a Mayo Clinic expert. And later on in the program, how cancer survivorship care plans can help patients and their families. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover? Well, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You are listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Using sunscreen is smart, but many people who apply the protective lotion make errors that leave them less protected than they expect. If a shot glass full of sunscreen sounds like a lot of lotion, you might not be using enough. The average person in studies only applies approximately one-third of the sunscreen that is recommended by volume. So if you're wearing an SPF 15, unfortunately, you're only getting an SPF of 5 because of the way that you apply it. Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis says a shot glass of protection isn't enough to cover the whole body. A shot glass full of sunscreen should only cover your face, your neck, 
and the backs of your two hands. The average sunscreen bottle will only last you four to five full body applications. Besides rubbing on enough sunscreen, it's important to reapply it every two hours, even sooner if you're in the water or if you're sweating. Even if your sunscreen is water resistant, it is not waterproof. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. For adults, taking care of our bodies include regular checkups with our doctor for recommended screening tests and probably a regular trip to the dentist. But what about the eye doctor? Of the estimated 61 million U.S. adults at high risk for vision loss, only half visited an eye doctor in the past 12 months. Eye exams at every age and stage of life can help keep your vision strong and detect any problems early on especially in that early treatment of common eye disease can help prevent permanent vision loss. Here to discuss eye health is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bakri. It's good to see you. Thank you, Tracy. How often should adults have an eye exam? We probably worry more about our teeth than we do our eyes. Is that, is that fair to say? Uh, that's fair to say. So I would recommend an eye exam perhaps starting at the age of 50, uh, uh, And that could be every year, every two years, every five years, depending on what the eye provider finds. Now, if you have a family history of eye disease, such as uh, glaucoma or uh, any uh, kind of disease that runs in the family, then perhaps you should start much sooner. How come? Well, glaucoma, for example, you know, is a silent disease that can affect people, you know, even uh, as young as 40 or even younger. And so it's not detected unless you have a formal eye exam and formal testing. And it runs in families. And that's just one example of many diseases that could be detected early and treated. So, Dr. Bakri, when we have our eye tests, do we go to our primary care physician and use those charts and, and read the letters? Is that what you're talking about? Now, what I'm talking about is a formal eye test by an eye care provider. And there are different types of eye care providers. There are optometrists and ophthalmologists. What's the difference? So, um, ophthalmologists are... Um, Uh, physicians and surgeons who uh, go to uh, medical school, do a residency in ophthalmology, and then perhaps one or two years of subspecialty ophthalmology training in a particular condition. Uh, Optometrists uh, go to optometry school and sometimes do uh, an optometry residency as well, and they're more general eye care providers. And so in terms of eye care providers, um, when I think of um, ophthalmologist or optometrist, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that they're going to see somebody to get glasses. Is, is that correct or is there a difference? So that's uh, one of the first things uh, that is checked. Um, if your vision um, isn't perfect, in other words, it's not 2020. the first thing to do is see if you have a, ref- a refractive error. So in other words, um, seeing if uh, uh, glasses would help get your vision in better focus. So that's really the first step. And then if If they fail to give you a perfect focus, then that indicates that you may have some eye disease, and so you need to take it further on. And so what are the common eye diseases you mentioned? So uh, in adults, uh, the common uh, eye diseases are cataracts, uh, glaucoma, uh, macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy. Let's talk about a few of those. Uh, We'll start with diabetic retinopathy. How does diabetes affect our eyesight? Diabetes affects uh, the eyesight uh, very slowly in most cases in a way that won't be detected unless uh, patients visit an eye care provider. And so um, 
when patients are diagnosed with diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, because that's a uh, slow-onset disease or may not be diagnosed in an acute fashion, patients may have had uh, eye disease brewing for a long time. So it's important upon diagnosis of type 2 diabetes to visit an eye care provider um, immediately. And what they look for is uh, specifically hemorrhages in the retina and also swelling or edema in the macula as well. And uh, so later stage, uh, the eye can start to grow new blood vessels, uh, bleed out, get vitreous hemorrhage, and at the most severe stages, uh, tractional uh, detachment. That sounds like something that someone would would be able to feel, but you're saying that if someone has that diabetic retinopathy, they can't feel it? Correct. So when you have small hemorrhages scattered within the retina, you won't know it. Even if you have mild uh, edema or swelling in the retina, you may not know it. Now, you may think, well, you know, my glass is dirty or am I just having a bad day or am I tired? And and typically, um, a lot of people um, have these sorts of generalized symptoms before actually realizing it's time to visit an eye doctor. And so, Dr. Bakri, many people will talk about floaters. What's actually a floater? Does that feel as if something's actually in the eye itself, like dirt? So, uh, interesting, floaters in French are known as mouche volante, which means... That sounds much better. (laughs) Flies. (laughs) Which means flies. And uh, that's exactly what patients see. You know, you could be looking uh, at a white screen and and think that that there's a fly in the way or that there's a a hair in the eye. And those typically happen with age. So about 60% of patients over the age of 60 um, have these symptoms. And over the age of 80, it's about 80%. And you typically see them when looking at uh, a clear day. Um, or, or a white background. What's happening to create that floater or that so fly? <laughs> when, uh, when we're born, the vitreous jelly is uh, very uh, solid, and as we age, it liquefies, and uh, the, the collagen fibers uh, you know, change, and so that's really what we're seeing. Hmm. And then as time goes on, the vitreous attachments to the retina um, become looser. And so when patients complain of a sudden floater, it's typically what we call a vitreous detachment. So the vitreous is just pulled off, and then they see floaters, and if they're really unlucky, a retinal tear. But that's, that's unusual for it to be a retinal tear. Well, it's, um, it's about uh, 10 to 15% uh, percent of patients who have uh, symptoms. And if a retina tears, what does a patient experience? So the patient won't know it. They'll just notice, if they're symptomatic, that they have floaters. Now, there are many tears that are asymptomatic, but if they're symptomatic, they'll have floaters. They go to the eye doctor. The eye doctor finds a tear in the retina and then uh, recommends uh, laser treatment. So if you have a floater in your eye, it doesn't mean you should race, run through the red lights to get to the, uh, to the eye doctor, but if they don't go away, then maybe you should? Is that right? Well, I wouldn't say race through the red lights, but if you have a sudden onset floater, then I would, you know, perhaps drive slowly. <laughs> but I would definitely get there. Or maybe get, get somebody out. else to drive. Yeah, that's even better. <laughs> Let's talk about macular de- degeneration because uh, people are living longer. That's giving their eyes uh, longer, more years. So that must be an increasing problem. It's a very, very common problem. And uh, as you mentioned, the biggest risk factor is age, um, but also there are other risk factors. Some are non-modifiable, such as being Caucasian or having you know, lighter colored eyes, but others are modifiable, such as UV exposure and particularly smoking. 
So some of my friends who are a little bit older than me, they say, oh, as you get older, you need glasses because you can't see as well. Is, it, is that macular degeneration? So, so that's presbyopia. He's talking about me. Oh. We were just talking about my, my arms aren't long enough anymore. Yeah. Presbyopia can start when at any time? Well, so actually it typically starts at the age of 40, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And in 40, you most got a people few years are in to denial. Go yet, Tracy. Uh, that, that's nice of you, Dr. Kakar. <laughs> yes, keep going. So I, I wouldn't classify presbyopia as a disease, whereas macular degeneration is a disease. Um, at least presbyopia is something that is completely correctable with uh, the proper uh, eyewear. It's just called middle age, Dr. Kakar. You're just going to have to deal with it when it happens, In about 10 years, yes. (laughs) Very good. We've been talking about adult eye health with Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Sophie Bakri. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bakri. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll learn about survivorship care plans for those living with cancer. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, nearly 15 million people who have been diagnosed with cancer are living in the United States. Although the rate of people who get cancer is going down, the overall number of people who have cancer is going up as people are living longer after being told they have cancer due to improvements in finding cancer early and better cancer treatments. But being a cancer survivor has its own challenges, both physical and psychological. One way to help patients and their loved ones with cancer is to create a survivorship plan. Here to discuss cancer survivorship care plans is Dr. Don Musalem. Dr. Musalem is a family physician at the Breast Clinic at Mayo Clinic's Florida campus. Welcome to the program, Dr. Musalem. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Who is a cancer survivor? When When do you start being a cancer survivor? You know, the Institute of Medicine defines a cancer survivor as anyone who has been diagnosed with cancer, and this actually begins at the time of diagnosis and for the remainder of that person's entire life. Some definitions even also include family members and caregivers because they, too, are affected by the cancer diagnosis. Can you, can you explain that a little bit, Dr. Musalem, about the family? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, when a patient first comes in for their diagnosis, the family sometimes, and and what I visualize, is more impacted by the cancer. The patient commonly is given uh, emotional coping strategies and tools to get through their diagnosis, especially in the very beginning. But it's the family that sits in the room and they feel lost. They don't know really what to do to help their loved one. So I respect the definition that the Institute of Medicine uses. And when I am meeting with a cancer patient, at the time of diagnosis or all the way at the conclusion of their cancer treatment, it's very important for us to also include the family members and caregivers in these discussions. We commonly see that caregivers, because they are taking on that burden, they themselves sometimes fall to be sick. So clearly this is also a team-based approach with the the patient and also the the caregivers. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about what a survivorship plan is and what that uh, means? Absolutely. The survivorship care plan is really a cancer treatment summary. Its intent is to concisely overview the entire cancer treatment that the patient received. You know, there are several things that we want the cancer survivorship care plan to include, and the Commission on Cancer, as of 2018, will mandate that accredited cancer centers include survivorship care plans for all of their cancer patients. The variable things that you want to look for in a survivorship care plan would include the names and contact information of the entire treatment team. So that would be the surgeon, the oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the center at which the patient received their their cancer treatment, as well as the phone number. 
Additionally, that we would want the survivorship care plan to include specific information about the cancer diagnosis, which would be the pathology, and the treatment that the patient received, specifically the surgery, the, the type of surgery that was done on the patient, including lymph nodes if lymph nodes were removed, if the patient received chemotherapy, the specific regimen of agents that the patient received, and the dates that the patient received those agents, and radiation therapy. It's important in the survivorship care plan to know where the radiation was delivered to the body, and again, we would want to know the dates that the radiation was given. I'm imagining uh, something in a three-ring binder that people carry around with them, <laughs> but uh, and I would imagine, though, that it's something that changes as well because over the course of treatment, the, depending on how the patient tolerates all, the, all of the stuff that's being thrown at them, you might have to change the plan quite a bit, or don't you? No, and you know, that's really interesting. A lot of sites handle their survivorship care plans in various ways. At Mayo Clinic Florida, we do actually start the survivorship care plan the day the patient's diagnosed. We start entering in what the original diagnosis is, and we build on that document each stage in the patient's journey of their cancer treatment. Um, you know, it's also important in the survivorship care plan that we don't just highlight the treatment that was received, though that is very important and it's really the premise of what the survivorship care plan stands for, the most important thing I see moving forward with the utilization of the survivorship care plan is looking at things like ongoing adverse effects that the patient may be experiencing. And, you know, Tracy, as you mentioned, this is an area that may change and have to be updated on the survivorship care plan, but we would want to include what side effects the patient received from treatment. For example, if the patient had neuropathy, what types of treatments were given to help the patient with that side effect of treatment? Or if the patient had lymphedema, have they done any physical therapy yet? We also want to really help to guide the patient. This is such a frightening time for many patients as to what should I expect next? These patients don't know what to expect. Should I be worried about my cancer coming back? What do I look for for cancer coming back? So the survivorship care plan is exactly where you want to go, and this is a resource that the patients can go and resort to if they have times of concern to go back through and read that list of possible late effects and or signs of recurrence or a new cancer developing. It's not meant to scare a patient when they read this, and in fact, I never see that in my patient's eyes when I deliver this information to them. They have more a sense of an empowerment that they're being educated to know what to look for. Um, so I find that probably the most important part of the survivorship care plan when I'm going over the information with the patient. And though the patients come in during their cancer journey with a three-ring binder with a lot of information, surprisingly enough, the survivorship care plan ends up being about a two- to four-page document, and it is very concisely delivered. So it's very effective in terms of delivering the important aspects to what the patient needs to know without being too wordy at the same time. So, Dr. Masalam, you mentioned the premise of the care plan. A lot of it was medical. How does it benefit the patients emotionally? You touched upon it earlier, but can you just uh, expand on that? Absolutely. You know, I think cancer for, for many patients comes in kind of three forms. We have our patients who, at the time of diagnosis, 
are really burdened by their disease and they have a hard time getting back to their normal. We have other patients where they're diagnosed with their cancer and they stay pretty much at their emotional baseline. And then I have a third subset of patients that their cancer diagnosis almost elevates them to experience life to a higher domain that they've experienced before. No matter where the patient's at in this kind of trajectory of the cancer impacting their life, I find that the survivorship care plan enables the patient to understand their diagnosis. It gives them the power to have the knowledge so that they are on the same page as their provider. And you can only follow with your oncologist for so long. And eventually these patients will transition back to primary care. And so we start to see that the survivorship care plans in the very beginning of the cancer journey really help the patient understand their diagnosis and continue to help the patient throughout their cancer journey all the way to the point that the patient transitions back to their primary care provider. So for me, I just see it being basically a safety net. It's something that the patient can fall back on. It's written out in very easy to read and interpret terminology so that it can eliminate some of the confusion and scare for patients at the conclusion of their cancer treatment when they don't know where to go. It's another resource they have. How do you, uh, you mentioned the primary care physician who obviously knows the patient well. How do you involve uh, the patient's uh, loved ones and family and friends? So, you know, I think every cancer center um, delivers the survivorship care plan in a different way. Our goal at Mayo Clinic is to deliver the survivorship care plan at the completion of chemotherapy or within that first year. And what we do is we sit down with the patient for about a 60-minute appointment, and the patient's family is encouraged to come with them at that appointment. And we go over the entire survivorship care plan, some of the topics we've already highlighted uh, this morning, but a few of the other things that we go over also include tips for healthy living moving forward and quality of life issues, as well as how to find quality health care and cancer support services. So upon sitting down with the patient to review the entire cancer summary, we then encourage the patient to share this information with their primary care provider. There are times when I do directly send a survivorship care plan to primary care providers, but ultimately it is the job of the patient to communicate back to their primary care provider the information in the survivorship care plan. And I really try to encourage my patients to take that active role because this is the step in the transition in the process that I really want them to commit to, to advocate for their health and to be a part of their healthcare team as a whole. Is there a place online where people can find more about a cancer survivorship plan? That's a great question. And in fact, the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Livestrong Foundation, the National Cancer Institute, there's many widely recognized cancer resource sites online that even have survivorship care plans patients can print off. Patients are able to copy off a sample survivorship care plan take it to their oncologist and ask their oncology treatment team to help them complete this document. From there, the patient can then take this document to their primary care physician and help to inform the primary care physician about exactly what treatments the patient has received for their cancer. Excellent. We've been talking about cancer survivorship care plans with Dr. Don Musalem from our Mayo Clinic Florida campus. Thank you for talking with us today, Dr. Musalem. Oh, thank you. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.